Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak again with Dr. Eric Butler. Eric is a research fellow at the Yale School of Drama. Eric translates literature and scholarship from French, German, and other European languages. In this specific episode, we discuss his translation of Byung Chohan's In the Swarm Digital Prospects. Uh, this is the second book that we've discussed that Eric Davis has translated, and we hope to do a few others in the coming weeks and months. Eric is uh, quickly becoming a, a good friend, if I can call him that. Uh, we sort of joke about that. You know, what does a good friend mean in the digital space and world uh, compared to people that we know in person? Because we actually don't know each other. We've never met in person, but we're developing this relationship in the digital sphere. And that's difficult and confusing. And we have to kind of work it out. Uh, in terms of some of the episode highlights, we talk about digital fingers versus active hands. As strange as that sounds, you have to read the book and listen to the episode to understand the depth of what we're getting at. Uh, we explore Byung Chohan's distinction of the shitstorm and, and how outrage works in the digital versus what he calls a political rage. We talk about the difference between the, the portrait and the selfie as a way to get at some of Byung Chohan's philosophy of the digital. 
Uh, we, we explore, and this is right hitting at the title of the book, the difference between the swarm and the crowd, how the swarm is soulless without spirit, how the crowd is ensouled. It develops a sense of a we and can lead to political action. And, and our conversation ends with uh, Eric Davis exploring a little bit about Carl Schmitt and some of his pop problematic philosophy and politics uh, in light of the Nazis and, and other issues and, and how um, Byung Chul Han is still influenced by this guy. And we, we sort of kind of tease some of those difficulties out a little bit. Uh, this was a really fun conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to know Eric better and having future conversations exploring uh, the work of Byung Chul Han. As, as we talk about in this episode, we both find that he is a figure that serves as a type of other, a type of alterity in our own life and thinking. He, he causes us to stop and, and ponder and slow down and experience a type of boredom where we can actually think and think differently and, and not be just stuck in what Cho, Cho, uh, Byung Cho Han calls the, the hell or the inferno of the same. And, and so I hope that this episode encourages you to think. I hope that it is a form of otherness in your life um, and a type of negativity because that's, that's important for your subjectivity. Please, guys, share this episode with others. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email if you have any other ideas of people that I could interview in light of uh, Byung Cho Han's philosophy. I'm, I'm looking to do more episodes exploring his works. Um, I know there's a reading group uh, forming, and there'll be more information about that in coming episodes. Again, guys, I appreciate you. Thank you for all the comments. Thank you for all the texts and emails that I get. Uh, all those mean so much to me. So anyways, I hope you have a wonderful day, a, a tremendous weekend. And until next time, please continue the conversation. Hey, Eric. Hello. How goes it? Good, man. How are you doing? Uh, all right. We kind of have a hesitant spring beginning here, so I'm, I'm ready for it to kind of just take the, to go to the next level and actually get warm and vernal the way it's supposed to be. Okay. See, I'm. But, uh, we're kind of struggling with the opposite problem. Uh, it's, you know... March here in Houston, and it is hot as hell. And we're, we're we we wish it was still colder. <laughs> okay, yeah, no that that always is, I guess the uh, 
the divide. I don't know. I since I've known nothing but the cold version for so long, though I, I got to say, much as I'd like to try to relate, I don't know if I can. I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I I really like your background. It, it, it seems different than the last time we talked. I, I know I'm in my kind of home studio. I was in the office last time, but I like the brick. In the back, it's very. Yeah, clear. I hope this is okay. It's there's a bit of a glow coming from. Maybe I can actually. I'll close the. Yeah, we've got this enclosed porch area. Is that even doing anything? Probably not. Um, oh, it, it's it's fine. No, no, no worries. All right. Yeah, it's very. At it's, any it's, rate, it's very nice. But uh, yeah, so this is uh, what we. Uh, in a sort of Germanic turn of phrase called the Winter Garden. Oh, okay. I like that. Which may or may not be a phrase that exists in other languages as well, but you get the idea. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So and and, and you're you're in Connecticut, right? Yes, indeed. Okay. I didn't know um I don't think I mentioned this last time but um my my little sister went to Yale and and really enjoyed it there and I I saw that I guess you're somehow connected to that institution but I couldn't tell very loosely very loosely okay Yeah no the undergraduates have a great time it's it's here to serve them and also whatever you know investment portfolios the yeah. Yale corporation has <laughs> those are the two main um considerations but uh, the likes of me are just kind of given a, <laughs> I don't know, a, a, a little sticker with a name on it for at various functions and maybe if we're lucky in office. And that's about it. Got you. It, it, it is super interesting how, you know, I'll talk to her and she didn't have to say anything else. But, yeah, I went to Yale and I think most people are just kind of immediately impressed and and she's not that type of person showing that off or, you know, thinking it's even that big of a deal. But, you know, she's always kind of shocked at how people treat her differently when they find that out. Well, that's to her credit. Not everyone here has, uh, <laughs> has such poise. Okay. <laughs> well, Eric, man, it is just super cool to just connect with you again. And um, I'm just so grateful for your time and, uh, I, I could say now I've read three of Byung Chohan's books. I'm just kind of slowly working through all of them if I can. And the three have actually been, um, you know, translated by you, which is just super cool. Well, for a while there, you know, I did uh, get handed a lot. Um, but then again, he wrote a lot and uh, other people have uh, tried their hand at translating other titles. Um, yeah, I, I actually wondered. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I can't find his email. I'm, I'm going through the publisher, and, and they just email me back and kind of are wondering why in the hell I'm trying to reach out to this person. But uh, there's a guy, maybe Daniel Stewart. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he's I think translated quite quite a few of the of the latest books. I don't know if you know him at all. I I don't. I don't. Who is publishing the newer books? Well, so I'm just I'm gonna pull out my stack real quick um it's something called polity books okay yeah i mean i'm I'm familiar with with the publisher um i was just kind of curious because when i did this it's already been probably like seven or eight years by now okay so um i was just kind of curious about how uh the sort of uh publication terrain had shifted in the interim 
just because books, it turns out, are just like anything else in this world. There are these markets that kind of have these little flurries of activity and some spaces open and others close. And, you know, some people come on board for a brief spell and uh, others uh, get off the proverbial bus um, all the time. And uh, so Got I know he was publishing his, his, his stuff at the moment. Um, well, yeah, and, and you know, and it's I, I don't know how it all works, but I noticed that some of his books were through the Stanford Press, and then a cu- this one that hopefully we'll talk about today, and and the um, Agony of Eros, which maybe we can have you back on to talk about that one, which was incredible. That was MIT Press, uh, but uh, yeah, I guess the latest ones have been Polity Press. I mean, maybe you could speak to that. How does an author choose which press he or she is going to go with? I mean, could you speak to that at all? Well, I uh, I wish I could. What I can speak to is um, how I understand the system to operate in actual fact, which is now through a new sort of group of middlemen mm. or middle women, as the case may be. That is to say, literary agents who uh, will um, basically buy a portfolio uh, at one press in one country and then go to presses in another country and sort of try to sell the, the these foreign presses on the projects that they have um, gathered up uh, Got you. somewhere else. So I, I don't expect the author here to have had any real hand in these decisions. Um, instead, it was probably a matter of people meeting at a conference and sort of uh, batting around various publication possibilities and then concluding oh this would be a uh, good fit for you know our x series here at y press got you so because yeah it, it did start out at stanford press and then mit and then i know i also translated one for verso and that one's um, coming in the mail psychopolitics right yeah that's a, that's a good one i have to see if i actually still have a copy of that i had i okay. moved across the country a few years ago which resulted in a few things getting lost. But uh, oh, psychopolitics man. is where he pulls out the the big guns to talk about, you know, uh, you know, big tech and, and data mining and uh, okay. those insidious forms of control. Mm. Yeah, no, I can't wait to get into that one. I, I, read a, I read a review where, you know, I think he employed the concept of, in a positive way, uh, becoming, becoming the idiot. And, and and how that's sort of a way to counter all of that, which I just can't wait to see what he does with that idea. Yeah, it's a boredom and idiocy, as it turns out, are really uh, your friend, uh, uh, according to uh, a certain line of reasoning that keeps um, popping up in his thought. Sure, sure. Now, <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on this one. I, As I was thinking about, you know, discussing uh, in the swarm digital prospects, you know, which is in some ways really uh, a trenchant critique of the digital and digital communication. I thought, wow, the irony of actually communicating with someone on a digital medium to discuss a book like that. Yes, <laughs> it, is, it is abundant. And also here we are so familiar, familiarly chatting on a first name basis before we've ever met in person. And there's all of this kind of uh, virtual proximity and closeness and familiarity that, in fact, uh, is generated entirely by the medium. I mean, under without without digital technology, uh, you know, we'd be sitting a, a thousand miles apart, 
and uh, have no idea of the other's existence. Oh, that's so true. Um, man, I, I, I need to sit with that one a little bit because I've even experienced in interviewing uh, many people on the podcast at this point from all over the world. I, I've felt like I've developed a type of relationship with some. I'm, I'm including you in that in that circle. But you're right. You know, at some level, we don't really know each other. But the the medium provides a way of maybe a type of relationship. But I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that comes up in the book a lot. Uh, you know, especially in the sort of later part where he starts talking about uh, Facebook about how you just count friendships there. You don't narrate friendships mm. there. You know, if you, if there's someone that you've known for many years, you will tell stories about each other and how you, you know, what you've experienced together and how you came to know each other and so forth. But all of that telling uh, and narration is gone um, in the digital sphere where you just kind of uh, click to see how many people you can add whom you've perhaps never even met and who, for all you know, could be sort of fictive concoctions, you know, dreamt up by somebody for uh, any number of purposes. That's such a good point. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you go to that reference because I actually kind of put a little note in it. And I wanted to add one of the things I wanted to ask you was if you could go into his statement about the digital pointing to the finger or I, I don't know if I say this correct, digitus. Yeah. And, and how it's about counting Versus what you were talking about last time, um, the hand, which is maybe about action. And if, if you can kind of unpack that distinction. Yeah, well, I can I can certainly try to. I mean, because uh, philosophers before him, especially uh, Martin Heidegger, you know, whom he uh, quotes extensively in yes. this book. It seems like uh, one of his major about, influences. Oh, yeah. No, he's definitely a, a titan of 20th century uh thought uh an interesting figure and of and a very problematic one too given his uh relationship to uh national socialism but anyway yeah. that's that's another matter um the same can be said of a lot of other people that that uh Byung Chul Han refers to Carl Schmidt is actually even worse uh, really yeah yeah well we can talk about that later I mean, he's, okay. he's a really smart guy too and a fascinating figure but but he um he laid the legal basis for he was he was a he was um his field of expertise was law and he drafted the laws that made a lot of the actions of uh, possible in the third reich that oh, no. subsequently became really notorious whereas heidegger was kind of you know a head in the clouds philosopher for Got the most you. part Anyway, but uh, Heidegger uh, talks about the hand and the sort of dignity of the hand, and it's being related to the earth and actual embodied activity, because that's very much what he's interested in, is a sort of materialist philosophy, which grounds people where they are and how they are. Um, all of this groundedness and earthliness, as it were, is... Um, is is the complete opposite of what you get in the digital mm. realm where uh because digit does in fact come from the uh, latin word meaning finger and all that you do in the digital realm is you point click swipe and do these abbreviated actions that don't in fact tie you in any enduring way to the earth and your surroundings. So you can you can get your hands dirty or you can keep your hands clean, mm. but you, you do things with your hands. They're just an active uh, 
their medium of activity, as it were. The finger, in contrast, which is how people interact with these computers, um, does barely anything at all. It just kind of makes ephemeral fleeting points of contact that don't last. Yes. Oh, man. Uh, you know, and, and, and in that paragraph where, where he gets into the distinction between the finger and the hand, he, he does, and this is, I, I find this throughout his work, he, he speaks very negatively of just the concept of, of counting and, uh, you know, uh, calculating. I, I wonder if you could speak to that. What's, what's kind of behind some of that disdain for those, those ideas? Right. Thanks. No, thanks for reminding me. I forgot all about that because that, I was there in your initial question. So we, there, when he's talking about the finger and the hand, he and uh, friendship versus mere uh, Facebook liking. Yes. Um, you know, authentic embodied human experience versus this kind of digital simulation of life. Uh, he makes an opposition between counting and recounting. Mm. And this works a lot better in German than it does in English. But as you can see, it, it uh, we ma- I managed to capture some of the wordplay there. Yes. Because when you recount something, you're telling a story and it's involved. There are characters, there's action, there's an arc, there's a progression of events. Counting, in uh, contrast, is just a truncated version of that. It's just a matter of listing things mm. and uh, going through the motions and just running up numbers. So, um, Jung Shul Han is part of a very long tradition, in especially in German philosophy, that takes a very dim view of mere calculation. Okay. Of, of, uh, I think that's really what his um, sort of enemy is there. It's not that he's opposed to counting and numbers and hates math or anything. What he's against is this kind of reductive calculating thinking that turns this. It's, it's there. It's the kind of thing that is captured in phrases, in English phrases, such as, you know, turning people into machines mm. or, or taking people, turning, turning them into a number. Got you. you. Yeah, you're just a number to me kind of thing. Yeah, or do you think you matter at all to these companies? You're just a number to them. I mean, that that kind of thing. So uh, that is his real enemy. And um, and so he's, yeah, he's not uh, some radical Luddite who wants to do away with, you know, calculators and... uh, (laughs) Well, I hate math personally, so... (laughs) Uh, Right. No, that, that, that's a, a very, I think, helpful distinction. Yeah, you know, he says, too, um, neither information nor tweets yield a whole, an account. A timeline does not recount the story of a life either. It provides no biography. Timelines are additive, not narrative. And and I guess I, I, I read that because that seems to be kind of an ongoing thing is talking about the importance of, of an accounting of things, a narrative structure, and, and how the digital maybe takes us away from that. Right. Well, yeah. And I think a way to sort of uh, approach this conceptually is just to think about the difference between friendships that you have uh, offline, as it were, and those that exist online. I mean, uh, if you've grown up with someone and have uh, done any number of things with them 
over the years and maybe had periods, you know, that were warmer and cooler and so on and so forth. There's a, there's an infinitely large number of things to talk about and, sure. and you can't really quantify the nature of that relationship. So even people can, you know, even people who are, for example, who don't like each other anymore and are say divorced or whatever, you, you can't just quantify that relationship and say, oh, well, now it's a bad relationship. Mm. Whereas formerly it was a good one. It's always, it's like, well, we did actually have good times and, you know, there was a lot in it, that kind of thing. So there's this huge world of qualitative experience that uh, cannot be turned into numbers or equations on the one hand. And uh, that's the side of life that the author valorizes. On the other hand, in this digital realm, well, you know, last week I um, went to a conference and I made, uh, I met six or seven new people. And then through contacts I made through them this week, I now have 84 new friends on Facebook, Right. you know, and here are all their names. I can list them off. And here, this is where this guy works. This is where this woman, you know, uh, teaches, et cetera, et cetera. You can do all that, but you don't have, there's nothing qualitative about it. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's purely a massive additive data. Um, and, and that's, so that's the basic kind of, uh, dichotomy that he's um talking about and uh always always pushing towards pushing for what you know is going to be a little bit more concrete and enduring okay yeah you know and what we what, one of the things i think about you know i'm always thinking about things in the context of uh, psychotherapy and my work with people you know people come in with you know, affects and emotions and experiences and thoughts and things that have happened. But part of the therapeutic process, I think part of the process of being a human on this planet is developing a, a narrative that makes sense of all that and puts it in its place and gives it a, uh, a structure, you know, maybe that season was, was not so great. You know, this one was really good. I'm looking forward to something else. And, and I kind of get that in, in Byung Chohan is the importance of the narrative in terms of making sense of our human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I absolutely agree. And I think that's uh, something that he points to in other ways that I've tried to refer to with terms of groundedness or or the being connected to the earth or sort of a a qualitative as opposed to a quantitative uh, register of experience, because yeah, to get back to the example of uh, a sort of real friendship versus Facebook friendship, a Facebook will give you a timeline mm. and that that is a purely automated series of points in time where things happen that some computer algorithm has guessed are important right and the the, the and so the the difference between that and then a story that you craft on your own however haltingly it's probably not going to be as elegant and smooth by any means as a timeline that's generated by an algorithm but it's going to be infinitely more meaningful and um anything that gets mentioned there won't be a lucky guess it'll be mentioned because it actually is important yeah okay so let, let let's see if there's something here you know his big thing about tearing with the negative and that the negative in so many ways serves a function for us and that part of the danger with the digital is that it can be so positive do you think there's something to that even thinking about narrative that when it comes to the facebook timeline i mean it's it has no real place to incorporate the negative it's it's all going to be positive and and 
how can it have anything that it contrasts with? Well, and, and that's why it's such an ungratifying experience in the end, or at least I stopped using it. Okay. Um, you know, uh, and uh, because at least for the longest time, I don't know what it's like now, but you have no, you, you could either not respond to what somebody posted or you could like it. Mm. There was no way to say, I don't like this, right. or I feel ambivalent about it, or anything like that. So it's really positive, both in the in that sense of, like, just constantly affirming everything. It's like, you know, my mother died of cancer. Great. I mean, yeah, right? Huh? Just, it doesn't include the room for any kind of appropriate response, nine times right. out, or for any number of situations in life. And then it's also positive in the in the sense of, you know, what goes into uh, the digital realm can never or it's it's notoriously difficult to take it back. Right. So it's positive and additive in that sense, too. It's like all of this embarrassing stuff that I put on there when I was going out with X or Y, you know, is still there now two or three years later. Mm. And I kind of have to like it because I can't go and uproot it. Mm. Um, so. uh Negativity is extremely important because that means that there's actually a process of shifting and sifting going on with with what with and and as you said, that's where like a real human relationship actually will exist. Right. In the kind of give and take, push and pull, back and forth, sort of occasional ambivalence, love, hate, even yes. that, that comes there. But um if you have everything that's poured into this streamlined format, and and in this regard, um, Facebook is hardly alone. It's just sort of the you know textbook example. Sure, uh, you just you don't have the room to react in any number of different ways that you would in real life, as it were. Mm. So, to the extent that you live your life online, you're also you're therefore falsifying your actual existence and kind of becoming an impersonation of yourself there the the term he uses for that is is an undead life yeah. uh, he says you know we live in this age of the digital undead or something like that yes i thought because that was real life is going to have negativity in it and yeah oh yeah no absolutely so man if, if this works for you that this was my kind of goal was to just kind of go through the book and, and highlight just different interesting strands and aspects. I'm, I'm sure we'll both highlight different things that were, were meaningful to us. But, you know, even if we can go all the way back to the beginning, you know, in the first chapter, no respect, I was hoping you could talk about even that word because he, he, he starts the book by saying literally respect means to look back. It stands for consideration and caution. And then I think he provides, it's probably the, the German word, and and he goes into this whole thing about how the digital is not a place of respect. And, and, and he has some really interesting things to say. I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that. Uh, well, I can certainly try because it's, it is a very uh, rich terrain. Um, okay. And I'll just try to stay focused. I think one thing uh, to sort of just ground the conversation sure. is think about um, all of the – think about online comments and – um, the kind of nonsense that you get there when people are posting all kinds of stuff anonymously, you know, they, they will go off the handle um, in no time at all. 
And that's a fundamentally different kind of situation than you would have uh, if people were all assembled in a room and each person had to say that kind of stuff while looking other people in the eye. Absolutely. I mean, he even gets into the example of even, you know, it sounds kind of antiquated, but in writing a letter, when someone was maybe upset about an issue and they'd write a letter to a magazine, they'd have to kind of put their name. The anonymous ones would have been kind of discarded. And that in the process of sitting down and writing, some of the affect would kind of dissipate and it'd be maybe a little bit more uh, clear and, and, and not as, yeah, not, not as insane and crazy as, as some of these comments can be that you're talking about. Yeah. So, so that, that's one way to, I think, sort of ground the idea of respect and, and, okay. what, and uh, what, it, what he means by looking back. It's like looking back at what you've done and, and taking uh, responsibility for it. Mm. Uh, and there, the German word, uh, Rücksicht, uh, also connotes um, taking consideration or care. Just, it's just, it just means sort of look at basically it's, it's, it would be closer in English to something like being circumspect, you know, okay. looking around, in other words, and making sure that what you're saying, uh, you know, actually makes sense and isn't just some kind of off-the-cuff asinine remark that is going to <laughs> That is that is either going to make somebody else's life miserable or if you have to answer for it yourself, which you don't, would make you miserable. Yes. So are, are these comments what he ends up referring to as the shit storm? Yeah. <laughs> that, is that an English phrase or not? Because I, I don't you know, I was actually going to ask you what the German word was, but but I, I don't know. It, but I love it. I'm, I'm going to start using shit storm from now on. <laughs> you know, I've heard it, but I don't know if I heard it. First, because of German users, because, uh, you know, because obviously shitstorm is a self-explanatory word. You don't need to know much English uh, to know that. And the, the German cognates are are right there anyway. Okay. <laughs> so, but a, a shitstorm, that would, uh, yeah, that is is a phrase I've heard, but I'm not sure that I've ever heard it from anybody who's a native English speaker. Okay. But it's it's, it's, a, it's an English phrase in German. Um. That he uses, uh, I, which he certainly didn't invent either. But um, you know, a, a good example of the shitstorm would be, you know, any single time that there's this, basically this digital mob jumping on somebody for failing to do something right in the court of public etiquette. Mm. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's um, making some kind of remark about some group that isn't considered, you know, sufficiently uh, deferential and appreciative to uh, a politicians like, um, well, saying something else that, that can be deemed inappropriate. I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, trying not to invoke any um, uh, past or future uh, presidential candidates. Here. Sure. Sure. There's um, <laughs> the, 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 the master of the shit storm is uh, I think, um, clear to all yeah i i I think people will kind of guess that one quickly (laughs) um yeah yeah and and i think that no matter where you fall politically i think everyone can agree that um donald trump didn't exactly inspire respect in people Mm. even even people who liked him liked him because he was brash and he was 
going up against all the all the decorum and propriety and 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 norms that are otherwise there they they liked him because he didn't show any respect to these institutions that they didn't respect yeah that's that's really well said um so so there's there's a lot to this uh idea of of uh of respect um it, it it is as 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 he says a matter of of distance. I was and hoping you could talk about John. that. Yeah, because he says it's it's the the pathos of distance it presupposes a distance a distant look. What 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 does that mean? I, I I was I was struck by that. Well, I think it means that if you're going to respect someone, you will actually. Uh, take them on their own terms. Mm. You're not going to assimilate them into your own world and and put them in your own categories, but you're going to uh, preserve the uh, the distance, both literal and metaphorical, that separates you from them to give them their own sphere of action and autonomy. Yeah, man, that's so good. And to to me, you know, I I think. I could be wrong, but but I think this is maybe connected to things he talks about in relationship to boredom and slowing down and lingering with things, because to me, that would require a type of space or distance that would need to be created to do that. No, absolutely. I certainly think so. Okay. And, yeah. And and so, okay, what, what do you think about this? So what's coming up for me as well is I think... And and I have to include myself in this when I'm not really thinking that part of why I'm drawn to the digital at one level is I feel like it provides a sense of immediacy and, and it takes away the distance, right? I feel like I'm up close all the time, but I feel like Byung Chohan is arguing that that's not the best approach, that, that, that maybe a type of mediation is necessary, a type of respect and distance is important when we're thinking about our social engagements. Well, he's definitely in favor of, of of that. And if nothing else, I think he um, is issuing a warning about mm. not falling for some of the uh, some of the enticements and lures of an easy, quick fix, um, instant gratification kind of world that the digital um, realm offers. Uh, in in his book, uh, The Agony of Eros, of course, he talks about this in the context of, of pornography. Oh, yeah. He talks about everything becoming pornographic when it's available just at a click of a mouse or just or a, or a swipe of the hand. And that's that's both literally true and then a metaphor for the type of relationship that you can have with people, one that has actually had its underlying human element sort of hollowed out and is now just a superficial kind of vulgarized um uh meeting of bodies but not minds yeah Mm. no that's 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 really good that makes me think uh i i can't remember if it was in the swarm or or the agony of eros i just finished that one this morning where I, th- I think it actually might be in the swarm where he talks about you know you, you you think in terms of the digital that a symmetrical type of communication would be important to humans and, and maybe there's a place for that but there's something about the asymmetry of older forms of communication that were important because it still held 
a, a place for the private and for types of hierarchies. And even in saying that, I don't like the way it sounds, but there, there were different channels that could take time to think about things and process before they just reacted and that, that maybe we've lost some of that. And, but, but I'm honest, if I'm honest with myself, when I say that, I'm like, ah, oh, could that be taken as, you know, kind of a conservative, let's go back to the past where, you know, there's these hierarchies and, and we need to kind of, um, you know, uh, we, we need to kind of uh, monitor how people are interacting with each other. I, I don't want to go in those directions, but I think he's onto something. No, I think he is. I mean, and I think that uh, despite uh, the fact that he tends to get published with these liberal leaning uh, presses, he's a big uh, crypto conservative in many regards mm. um, because he, uh, because he he doesn't um, fall for the he doesn't or he he thinks that a lot of the uh, new technological offerings of the world are just. Um, lures and false and entrap and it forms of entrapment basically yeah uh, that wind up leading to an alienated uh existence but um another way to uh talk about uh all of this that seems a little bit more neutral in a political sense is and this is is the way he does and i think uh the transparency society okay he, he talks there about smooth surfaces versus bumpy and rocky ones mm. so a hierarchical respectful kind of space would have different kinds of rocks as it were where things stand at different levels and there is it isn't necessarily an a, a pyramid where everything that is better is higher up and there's okay. this constant progress or anything but there is this unevenness in the world of respect mm. you know, well well yeah because you're taking different types of personhood into account and that contrasts with the digital realm which is just about smoothing out things as much as possible in as many directions as possible so that there are no more bumps and there is no more friction um, but when you do that, you actually uh, wind up creating a slippery surface that basically nobody can stand firm on. Wow, man. And I think you see that today. That's that's so good. I, I appreciate you connecting that to the Transparency Society, which is another one that, that came in the mail that I'm hoping to read and talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that one looks really good. I think that was the first one that I translated. Oh, okay. In- but um, but at any rate, yeah. So there's this idea of 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 respect, and like he, it can be given a conservative turn uh, for sure. But it, it can also be uh, thought of in sort of more topographical kinds of ways, just mm. as different types of terrain to the, that that you can inhabit. And he's always. He's always for natural formations, as it were, where it's naturally a little bit bumpy or higher or lower or whatever, as opposed to some kind of man-made, you know, asphalt surface where everything is going to glide, but therefore go careening out of control possibly as well. Man, that's so good. I'm so glad you're bringing kind of that, the the the, the topological because I in the three books I've read so far, he brings it up quite a bit and I wondered about that. Again, I, I think it's an agony of eros. He he talks about the other. I'm assuming this is Greek as the atopos. Yeah, and and man, I I think I understand what that means, but I, but I think you could probably explain it better than than I understand it. What 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 does he mean by that? As well, other as atopos, the way that is 
translated typically is just as strange, other, or different. Okay. So the atapos, because the root word there is tapas, like in our word topographical. Like a pl- place? It just means place. And um, and the atapos is what doesn't, doesn't have a place and doesn't fit in. And so mm. therefore, uh, I think Socrates' interlocutors call him this, a strange man, a man who doesn't fit in Yes, uh, many times because uh, that's exactly what he does. Everything has its place in the world, and then he comes along and upsets it by asking all of his strange questions mm. of, of everyone. So uh, I think that a lot of um, what happens in these books is serving that same purpose of this sort of Socratic uh, atopicality, as yeah. it were. Oh, good word. And, 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 and just making something. Well, yeah, actually, that isn't a bad word, is it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm but, writing that one down. <laughs> sure. There's. There, okay. So yeah, that's a very topical remark. But there's also you could also say that's a very atopical remark, and that could be just as appreciative. Mm. Yeah. And, and and don't you think? I mean, in terms of the overall argument of of in the swarm, he laments that the digital. I, I don't know if this is too strong, but it it almost erases the other in our lives, or or it it. Maybe it creates a sense in which there is no, you know, alterity, and that that's not a good thing. That that we 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 need that uh, to to be, you know, people in on this planet. We 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 need another. Oh yeah, absolutely, and this comes out in different ways throughout the book. I mean, in the very beginning, it's there with the idea of respect, mm. meaning actually not not just. Um, transferring someone into your own little world where they lose all their difference and just become one of a hundred different friends in a list. Right. Uh, or uh, to the end, to the latter part of the book, or where he's again talking about social media and he, he uh, makes the distinction between the countenance and the face. Oh yeah. So the countenance is actually something that has human weight presence dignity and a story behind it yes and even a shadow as he talks about right even a shadow and it can also it can can look in different ways it can look sort of slyly or it can it can conceal something it it doesn't have it's not inherently better um because it can be dishonest too but it is inherently deeper and he contrasts that with the face. Another thing, uh, which he doesn't do, what she could though, which would be perfect. Would be this is the difference between a portrait and a selfie. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Say more you about know? that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just sort of making this up, but along lines that I think he would appreciate because a portrait uh, is something that you. Uh, well, of course, you can take a photographic portrait of someone as well as uh, having them sit you know, for a painting. But at any rate, it's a much more time intensive and thought out kind of activity if you're going Mm. to have a because a a portrait is supposed to be a monument to the person and sort of capture some of their character so you know that's why you'll have you know families where everybody is assembled and arranged in a certain way that that reflects some kind of ideal order or or a, a portrait where somebody is you know striking some pose like they're deep in thought or they're looking off you know in a reverie towards the horizon or something like that. Anyway, a portrait is something that, um, <clears throat> to use Byung-Chul Han's terms, recounts something. It yeah. is narrative. Yes. And, um, and also in the past, and also you can't have 
Nobody has many portraits. Even somebody who's extremely famous will only have a handful of portraits mm. made because each one is holds so much. Got you. And the contrast between that and a kind of selfie, which is just in the moment, look at me having fun, look at me here with my friends, look at me having fun here with my friends uh, in this cool place. All that lacks all of the gravity and depth and and weight and, and it, it of of the portrait. And even though it and in fact, it also lacks the story. It gestures mm. towards events that have happened, like here, this is us at, you know, whatever party or something. But it doesn't tell the story of the party as in, as in who organized it, who showed up, who, you know, what the overall mood was there, what the occasion was. You know whether you know what was being celebrated or, or, or what have you. So um, uh, I can't remember quite how we we got on the subject, but um, but the, uh, the 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 face versus like countenance. Oh yeah, the, the face versus the countenance. Yeah, there there there's that's um, that's a classic sort of dichotomy that that, okay. that he works out. Yeah, you know, man, I think about Mona Lisa. And, 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 and why that is, you know, arguably one of the most famous, you know, works of art of all time. I mean, I, I think it's like the anti-selfie. And, and, and you know, uh, to, to, to your point where even the, the most elite person might have one or two or three portraits done. Yeah I, yeah, I work with a lot of teenagers. There's probably tens of thousands of selfies on their phones, you know, so... <laughs> Right. And, and the thing is, you, you and it's constantly additive. You need you need more and more because they, they never they you know, it never actually captures the fullness of someone's being. Yeah, you know, I'm going to need 10,000 more just to show the full range of who I am. And you're never going to get there as opposed to a single commanding representation that, that shows somebody in some kind of deeply characteristic, you know, frame of being where mm. where they're doing the thing that you know them for. And that you will always know them for. Do you, okay, so I, I know we're kind of venturing into speculation at this point, but I, but I love it, right? We're kind of building on some of Byung Cho Han's ideas. Do, do you think he would have anything to say where, you know, photography or, or even the portrait is, is someone else sort of rendering the image versus the selfie? You're, you're doing it yourself. Do, do you think there's anything there philosophically that he would want to kind well, of point out? Well, there is something there that I'm sure he deplores, which is the, the selfie, which, which is the, the doing it yourself. I mean, okay. he would he would basically understand this as um, this is like the uh, this is like the PR version of the achievement subject, mm. constantly striving to do something more and never filling the 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 hole in the bucket that's always there, all the same. Um, uh, I know that he talks uh, at at various points in this book about uh, Holland Barth's um, book, um, yes. Camera Lucida, which is all about photography. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know that he um, and and again in the Agony of Eros, he he talks about the pornographic image. So this is something he does develop elsewhere. Okay. Um, not not so much um, apart from the the Roland Bart uh, uh, passages in in the swarm. Okay. 
Uh, so so since you brought him up, um, I, I, I did kind of like uh, note a, a quote that I wanted to ask you about. So Roland Barthes defines the private sphere as the zone of space of time where I'm not an image, an object. And uh, and th- again, this is something Byung Chohan laments about like the digital age or digitality is that it, I guess, reduces people to image. It takes away a sense of privacy, which which is maybe essential. And yeah, and what's more, and what's really perverse about it, I think he would say, is that people volunteer to give away their privacy. Ooh. They're actually thrilled to be sharing as much, you know, information about themselves as possible, as much information as would in former and other types of society have even been considered, you know, self-compromising or embarrassing. Sure. People are just oversharing all the time now. Mm. And that's that's actually the norm. Yeah. Oh man, that's 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 just uh, that that gets me thinking, and it's very problematic. So I, you know, going back to a comment you made, you know, I, I can't see how he could be seen as maybe a, a type of conservative figure, e- even though there there's so many things that he says that that seem to fit more with the left. Um, I I I wonder how you personally kind of navigate that tension, if if you could speak to not not that you have to get into your own political beliefs if you don't want to but just in terms of the conservative strain in his thinking how, how do you tend to kind of work with that well you know I, I i don't really whenever you're dealing with um uh anything historical uh in in any kind of framework that goes back more than three or four months you're automatically <laughs> talking about times, places, and conditions, and circumstances that are really foreign to what you know. Mm. And um, similarly, when you're talking, so so just in, in, in this instance here, we've got a writer who is, he's, he's writing in German, in dialogue with all of these people uh, from even, from, from decades earlier. Uh, and Besides that, he's um, not a native German. He's from South Korea. I'm just going to go ahead and assume, I think rightly, that he's he's got a whole bunch of life experiences and preconceptions and also good reasons for thinking differently that just stand worlds away from anything that I can begin to understand gotcha. uh, fully. And and so, and plus, it's not really like there's that much at stake. It's not like I have to hold him accountable to anything. It's not sure. like, you know, it's not like he's making a political endorsement or something or, or whole, wields any kind of real power uh, over um, over people's lives. In fact, that's one thing that I think is very regrettable is this is this um, jump to condemn people as if they had political power. I mean, I think lots of people say lots of dumb stuff all the time sure you know especially about politics but <laughs> the stakes more often than not are minimal yeah right exactly i mean it's it's another matter when you've got somebody who's holding public office or whatever or, sure. or is trying to hold it but um so uh any anyways uh but there's nothing in in what he writes that particularly offends me it just it just seems to be coming from another place and uh and and another time to a certain extent sure and um, and that's a, and actually just 
appreciating that is another way of encountering alterity. Exactly. That's That's why I read him. You know, in some ways he seems so strange and counterintuitive and his, his ideas seem kind of ancient in some ways. And and they kind of stopped me in my tracks and, and caused me to think differently. And I, I like, it's hard and, and I don't always translate it into action, but, but I, I, I appreciate his otherness. Yeah, no, and I also just love uh, the fact that um, he's somebody who uh, who went on his who who discovered Western philosophy. We're so used to um, mm. these stories about people, uh, sort of from the hippie generation, I suppose. But uh, oh yeah, other too, of discovering the joys of Eastern philosophy, you know. And here, and and that is their encounter with otherness and going into a foreign mm. terrain. Here we have somebody who actually is from the East and is going westward in order to find what's strange there and and is actually showing to people who might only know Western culture what's so strange about their own heritage. And that's a kind of neat you know, reversal of uh, what you might expect. Eric, I love that. And I think that's a great point. Yeah. Now... Could we go for a minute to, I think it's chapter three where he, or excuse me, chapter two, where he talks about the outrage society. Cause I wanted to ask you, he, he talks about outrage, like on the internet and, and people, you know, kind of <laughs> losing their minds through these shit storms versus maybe a type of political rage or a type of legitimate rage that can lead to the political, can lead to action. And, and I was hoping you could maybe explore that distinction. Boy, well, I uh, it'd be great if I could. I I, I can I can I can uh, venture a few thoughts anyway. Okay. And, hey, that sounds uh, good to me. <laughs> so, um, well, there's a there's a world of difference, I guess, between uh, that he points out between outrage and rage because the Iliad, which is you know commonly taken to be the poem that sort of inaugurates the Western tradition of, right. of literature, begins with the word rage and it is and achilles rage is not just him being in a bad mood it's not just him being indignant i mean there are elements of that sort of baby man attitude in the (laughs) in the epic like he's like oh you took my slave girl i want her i mean that is does seem sort of childish and petulant sure but the whole arc of the poem is how uh a war within um the greek a war within the among the greeks actually gets rerouted and turned into uh, a war against um the the trojans when uh, the great hero uh finally um makes well stops fighting with himself and stops fighting with his comrades mm. uh, in or in the name of their uh, joint expedition and um the uh so the rage of achilles is something that well independent of my inadequate plot summary the rage of achilles is something that gives the shape to all you know 18 20 however many books right. there are of the poem and that is uh <clears throat> something rather different from the kind of pettiness and smallness of the outrage that we get today mm. i think outrage is another word it's another word like face it's another word like selfie it's another word yes. like for for something that is ephemeral uh and and fleeting it's mm. it's uh 
um, outrage is, is like the shit storm. It's just something, it's a lot of noise about nothing in particular. Okay. Which I think might actually be a James Brown quote. Okay. Uh, a lot of, well, it's, it's, it's paraphrasing James Brown. Uh, <laughs> going on, something about saying nothing. Sure, sure. Okay, where, and, and then and then where where rage? I, I, how how do you understand Byung Chohan's understanding of rage and and what he's trying to to say with that in contrast to this ephemeral kind of outrage? Well, I um this you you will have noted of course that this is one of the shorter chapters and I don't know that he really uh, develops this as fully as he might right but one direction he might go in is that um rage uh, is something that would actually yield to an would actually yield an authentic political vision in the same because it would actually have a movement and a direction and an overall arc to it. It's just like the the tro the story of the Trojan War mm. can be told under a single heading, rage, because it's this unified event. Um by the same token, if there were something uh in political discourse today that actually managed to attain that status then some kind of real politics as opposed to uh, trolling, which okay. is really what... Right, it, right, it, exactly. Uh, ...could result. So it, it's, it's the difference between real indignation and, and real change versus trolling. Yes. Trolling is not what he doesn't use, but that's there all the time because the troll lives for the shitstorm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a, a phrase that I do hear sometimes, which I think connects trolling to the shitstorm, is what's called just shit posting. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, no, it's 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 there. It's it's yeah. So I've, I've heard that too. I I don't know that I love this concept because I think it has a lot of religious baggage, at least for me. But I I, I wondered if what he means by rage is a type of r righteous indignation or, or righteous anger. Again, I'm it, I'm, I'm conflicted or principled. Okay, I mean, it stands for something. I, I like that better. Principled, like a principled anger, which which maybe is related to how justice can come about at some level. Is is we 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 need that that type of affect to to do something. Yeah, it's, it's an impetus. It, 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 it's and it's 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 something like respect. It's something that stands firm on its two feet. Okay, and like you know, is. Uh, is is it's taking a stand it's taking a stand and and that is um precisely what's missing in the world of uh shit storms shit posting and trolling where nobody has to take a stand because it's all anonymous yeah yeah man and, and achilles is he is a he is a well-defined person too and that's 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 another thing uh okay even even if what he stands for is not something that we would um, applaud, uh, he 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 is an integral uh, and complete representation of 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 somebody. Sure, yeah, maybe at some point again. I think this was in the agony of Eros, but he talks about the importance of again. And this sounds kind of conservative, but being a principled person, having values that, that we've kind of lost that in the digital world, and that becomes problematic. Yeah, and it certainly is problematic if the only people who talk about having values and principles are conservatives. I mean, if if they have a monopoly on that kind of um, discourse, then that suggests that there are real problems 
with the people who want to, but obviously can't offer an alternative. Mm. Yeah. Wow. No, that's, that, that's good. Do, do you think uh, before, cause I, I do want to ask you about just the concept of swarm and, and his, how he distinguishes that from, from like maybe a, a legitimate collective or, or group, but do, do you think he would have issues with like cancel culture? Is, is that a type of way of, you know, outrage that really isn't firmly grounded in anything and i'm, I'm careful about that because i know some of the cancel culture is rooted in legitimate bad behavior which i wouldn't be for you know some of the me too stuff but but some of the cancel culture i really struggle with because it seems more like this unprincipled outrage than anything legitimate yeah i well i think you would definitely uh you know if you were to add an appendix now in okay 23 cancel culture would be right there because that 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 is more or less even synonymous i think with how he describes outrage okay it's just like everybody i can't believe that he or she or whatever said that right and on the basis of that you know you're going to um just disown them completely sure um that uh, yeah that's that's not a very principled kind of action this is just kind of a mass reflex mm. and that also gets uh back to uh, what you were saying about the swarm the swarm is not something that actually thinks on its own it's more like a series of of uh conditioned responses or reflexes okay yeah so so eric i mean uh could, could you speak to the the what's the german word there for swarm i, I was curious if there was anything kind of deeper there it would have to be im schwarm so viel ich weiß uh i'm trying to think if what what words he uses sure. um uh, you know he 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 maps out a, a space for it in distinction to other in contradistinction to other uh words that 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 have been used to refer to large masses of people like like the crowd crowd mass class right and so on and so forth so the swarm is really something that is to his mind unique to the um, digital age and it is something that only exists in the space where um in the space where what counts are immediate reactions and and surface phenomena and sort of additive logics and but nothing more enduring and substantive. Yes, yes. I, I love I just, I just want to read a line. He says the digital swarm lacks the soul or spirit of the masses. Individuals who come together as a swarm do not need to develop a we. No harmony prevails, which is what welds the crowd together into an active entity. And, and this is, to me, you know, because I, I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm, I'm working on an article where I'm trying to f- piece together kind of the more contemplative aspects of his thought with the more political. I think they're wedded together. But, but that, that's something that's very inspiring to me about his kind of philosophy is he is quite political. I mean, he, he, he laments that the digital is actually resulting in this, yeah, type of collectivity that, has no real soul or substance that that really can't act right it's it's more about fingering the world as he says than actually the hand doing shit right accomplishing stuff yeah yeah no and and uh, and fingering the world is a great kind of mildly obscene image too. right no i thought i mean it was very sexual right but but it, it was a, it was an arresting image that got me thinking for sure 
Because yeah, because it's just kind of intrusive, and it's 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 not like a it's not a principled, however deplorable this might be. No, no, it's not a principled attack. It's right, like this right, kind of sneaky, stealth, like weaselly, like underhanded kind of approach. Absolutely, sure, man. Okay, is there? I I I know that that uh, we're coming on the hour mark or so, but but I wanted to see if there was anything else in the book. Uh, th- this book in particular that that just stuck out to you that was important as as you translated it. I, I know we could probably talk about it for hours. There was so much good stuff in there, but I, th- I think we've hit on some of the really important points. Yeah, the uh, I you know well at at some point, um, but it really there's too little time to talk about it now. Talking a bit about Carl Schmidt would be. Uh, would be um actually i have some time if, if, if you can because I, and I'll, I'll say this um you know there, there's a there's a there's a scholar he's a he's a professor at the university of vermont he's really important to me personally and professionally he's written a lot about psychoanalysis and capitalism his name is uh, todd mcgowan and you know that guy hates carl schmidt and some of his ideas so to have someone like byung chohan write about him positively it it took me aback a little bit because i don't know much about him so maybe you could get into schmidt a little bit okay well the so the the quickest and dirtiest version which is kind of a fitting turn of phrase (laughs) uh, he he was born in the late 19th century and he lived a long life i think he died in the 1980s but he made Mm. his name uh as a uh, legal thinker uh during the weimar republic as the most outspoken enemy of the Weimar Republic on the sort of intellectual right. Okay. He, his whole point was that um, parliamentary debate and exchanging ideas really ultimately mean nothing. What, what matters is the decision that's taken and the action that follows from it. So you can see that this kind of love for, uh, you know, decision and action uh led straight to where it did uh you know oh uh, yeah when the Nazis took over and he and Carl Schmidt was um you know uh had had a for a few years a great career under the Nazis basically coming up with the legal foundations for um the uh, type of government that they uh, then implemented in Germany and then uh, subsequently in occupied territories. He he had a falling out. That he he didn't stay in 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 favor with um, the uh, the top brass forever though. And so then a lot of people have used this as a uh, sort of escape hatch to sort of get him out of the problem of real complicity. But I think that's nonsense. I okay. mean, just because. You have a disagreement with Hitler doesn't mean. I mean that that can, that can mean a lot of things, right? You know? I mean, and, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so after the Second World War, Schmidt was never allowed to teach again, uh, and he had, had he had this his brilliant career, you know, went absolutely nowhere. Mm. But he was still very much. Um, admired by uh people of all political stripes i mean because if somebody is is smart you know they're smart and they'll, right. uh, they'll command your respect anyhow but he was especially admired by people on the right who uh uh thought that he had good ideas okay about and uh so 
for the last uh, you know four decades of his life or so on, he basically was acting as this private consultant to all, anyone uh, in German or, for that matter, European politics who wanted to come and. Um, I don't know exactly what system he had worked out, like if he, you know, had them buy him lunch or a, or a new <laughs> or something. Got you. But he he was there um, as a as a political consultant, basically behind the scenes in Germany uh, for decades after the Third Reich fell, and he never really um, he he. Uh, whereas he deplored a few excesses that had been committed, he was never really. Um, one to uh, question the whole undertaking from the beginning. Gotcha. So um, anyway, that's 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 the the same guy that uh, that our author here refers to uh, appreciatively. So um, Carl Schmidt. Anyway, he's he's a, he's a smart guy, but he was definitely on the uh, on the wrong side of history. Gotcha. Extremely say. problematic. Sounds like. Yeah, you know, I, I, there's that line I think in here where where he says that Schmidt would have hated the digital and right before he died, he even had all of his TVs and I forget what, maybe radios taken out yeah. of his house. So I thought that was kind of funny, but no, no, but he said it as if, as if he were some kind of charming, quirky old uncle. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Somebody who was, uh, you know, really, uh, really applauding the arrival of jackboots back in the day. Yeah. So Eric, okay, maybe final question. So one of the criticisms I've heard of Byung Chohan in some of the interviews I've listened to and people I've talked to is while they resonate deeply with his thought and it kind of like we were talking about serves as a type of otherness and alterity and just a counterintuitive way to look at things, they they wonder if he's practical enough or or if some of his ideas can actually be sustained in the quote-unquote real world and and i don't know where i stand with all that but i'm just curious if if you have any thoughts on that well i don't know i guess it just depends how much uh the uh conversation we're having here uh, it counts as part of the real world or not okay you fair <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, just just because i mean that's that that's uh kind of question and criticism that people have of philosophers in general is like well Good what point. does this really mean in practical terms sure I don't know, but uh, well, to know of to to employ a phrase that I know you're fond of, you know, it's uh, it's important to keep the conversation going. So yes, yes, and I, and I, man, that's so good, and I have to believe that even conversations like these do matter, and that they have some type of influence. And so I don't know. I, I think I want to be on the side that says yes, he's a radical thinker, and and some of his critique of the digital would be hard to maintain given that we're all so addicted to it, I would probably argue, and just so enmeshed with it. But he at least calls me to think hard about how to resist it in some ways. Even If I can't fully, I know I can't do everything as a single individual, I, I do want to take the time to experience boredom and to linger with things and to have respect so that I can not be so you know exploited by it, you know? Yeah, no, he's definitely opening up space for anyone who, you know, bothers to sit down and do something as uh, uh, inefficient, old school, and perhaps boring as read a book. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. Because that's one of the things he laments in The Agony of Desire is just how we've lost the capacity to think and and how, you know, 
slowing down and being bored is a way for us to recover that. And I think that's important. Absolutely. So once again, we've, we're there with productive boredom. Productive boredom. I, I, you know, I keep on circling back to that. So, okay, would you mind just ending with the line of the podcast, which is continue the conversation? Oh, absolutely. Continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.